Good. Good to worship God, isn't it? Also, God, God is good and prepares our hearts. I think you'll see how relevant was David's word um, as we go through our thoughts this morning in God's word. Um, if you've, um, I trust you've got your sermon notes. Anybody not got sermon notes? Put your hand up if you haven't. Uh, good. Well done. It's, system works. Good. Um, You'll notice that um, on your sermon notes there, uh, we've got the logo for A Passion for Life. I think most of you have caught up with the fact that we're, along with two other churches involved, um, in an evangelistic enterprise that has its focus next Easter. Uh, Easter week is going to be a concentrated time of evangelism. There'll be all sorts of activities going on morning, afternoon and evening. And we're sharing with two other churches in this and there are going to be some visiting evangelists during that week, and uh, it's going to be a great opportunity, we trust, for many of our friends and uh, relatives uh, to hear the gospel. But uh, there's a preparation time before that, that, and um, the program includes um, bridge-building events where um, the gospel is not being preached, it's just a social time of one sort or another that we hope that friends and relatives will be happy to come to. They're designed to suit them, not to suit us. They're not churchy things. They're things that they would be comfortable with. But we will go, we will take them, and um, trust that relationships will be improved and, and built so that come Easter, they, they will be more inclined to carry on developing that relationship and friendship and come along to some of the meetings. So that, that's in essence what it's about. And I, I know that many of you are, are up with that. But you'll notice... On the top of your sheet, you've got the words prepared, prepared for mission. And uh, we would be foolish, wouldn't we? Even though we know the gospel, we've got things that are rolling already, we'd be foolish not to prepare ourselves for something that we feel we're putting a lot of energy and effort into, and finance, it will be eventually. Um, we'd be silly not to prepare ourselves. And so um, the organisers and those who present this um, enterprise, this uh, passion for, uh, for life, um, have suggested three phases of our preparation. Pray. Um, we know we should pray because it's God's mission. If you um, look on the front of your bulletin, you don't have to, but because you know it worked too well anyway, but we're living life Jesus' way by his spirit on his mission. It's not our mission, it's his mission. God is the missionary and he's called us alongside to share in this wonderful task of telling people the good news all around the world. And so it's important that we pray because if it's God's mission, we've got to do it God's way. And we need God's help. We need God's help in terms of the people that we should speak to and develop relationships with and so on. Then the next one is engage. And that refers to engaging with the community in some way uh, by, by these events or other things that we might want to do. It doesn't these things don't restrict us from doing things on a personal basis, inviting people around for meals and so on. But we do need to engage. Now, whilst it's true that some people may be saved by a gospel portion, a tract, um, being given a Gideon's Bible, most people are saved because they have friends who are Christians. That, that's the statistic. Most people are saved because of that. And just as the word, Jesus, the word had to become flesh, and dwell among us, then the word of God in us must become flesh. People must know that it works. 
this gospel we're, t- we're telling them, they've got to see that it works in our lives. So it's very important that the word becomes flesh in us. And then the prepare. Um, I guess most of us know the gospel, but when it comes to it, sometimes we're a bit tongue-tied when it comes to explaining it, aren't we? You know, we know it, we, we could quote scriptures, but if somebody suddenly says to us, Okay, you're a Christian. What's it all about then? Uh, 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 yes, well, uh, um, you know. So I'm sure we can all do with some preparation. So the, the, the aim is there that, as the, the uh, Apostle Peter said, that uh, we should be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in us. If people ask us, and we trust that they will, um, uh, they will ask us. So that's the kind of three phases uh, of the of the mission. And today we're looking at pray, and we're going to continue that at least till, till next week. We should be dipping into the topics that are being raised um, for this campaign um, in our preaching over the next few weeks and, and round to Easter. But of course we've got Christmas coming up as well in between, so we'll be concentrating on that. So we're going to look at pray today, and we're going to look at the privilege of Christian prayer. If you'd be turning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and um, we'll be exploring the Lord's Prayer this morning now you might say well it's I know the Lord's Prayer I learnt it at school and it's a bit old hat but if Jesus said this is how you should pray then we must keep on revisiting this to make sure that we're on track really and that we're approaching it in the right, the right spirit. You'll notice that alongside Matthew 6 on your sheet, we've got Luke 11, because the Lord's Prayer appears in Luke's Gospel as well. You'll find that the words are very similar, but the context is different. The context of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. The context in Luke is slightly different. Um, and in fact, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. Whereas in Matthew, you'll see that he says, when you pray, you pray in this way. So we're going to read that and then uh, we're going to see what God would have us uh, learn from this. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right, left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts 
as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. Just a simple prayer. Lord, please teach us to pray. Amen. Although it's not specifically about prayer, um, we're going to look also at what Jesus was talking about at the beginning here in terms of of acts of righteousness. Um, he talks about acts of righteousness and then he talks about prayer. And I, I want to do this in the context that very often, particularly as evangelical Christians, we like to make a distinction between religion and our Christian faith, which we emphasise is a relationship, don't we? That's what we say. We're not about religion, we're about a relationship. But having said that, religion is not used in a negative way in the scriptures. It's often used quite positively. But nevertheless, it can be sometimes helpful to make that distinction. Um, Because um, when we think about religion, um, it's about um, having certain rules and regulations and various acts. Uh, There may be um, various performances and things that that people need to do in order uh, to support their religion. And... um, The distinction here is that this is not what Christianity is about. Uh, Christianity isn't about um, necessarily um, what rules you follow or what acts you do, but it's about whether you have a relationship um, with your Heavenly Father. So in that context, it would be good just to look at these opening four verses, uh, which are not about prayer, but they're in the same context, context. And really, it's about what is our motivation. And you'll notice... That Jesus doesn't say, you are doing the wrong thing. Hey guys, you're actually, or these people are doing the wrong thing. He said, no, they're performing righteous acts. They are good things that they're doing, but they're doing them with wrong motives. And what the tragedy is, they are missing God's reward. He said they already have their reward because they're doing them before men. They're receiving praise from men. And that is their reward. They will not get a reward from God uh, under those circumstances. So what is the reward? What is the reward that God has? Now, um, the Bible talks of many things as being rewards, and we can't go into all the detail of it. And some Christians back away from that. They say, no, I'm I'm not doing this for any reward. I'm I'm actually doing it because I love God. Well, the, the, the two things are not incompatible at all. But we shouldn't be afraid of the fact that, 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 that Jesus very often talks about rewards. But we need to know what they are. And in this particular case, it is God himself. The reward is God. Um, and um, uh, if you think back to um, Genesis, um, when um, God called Abraham, who was a pagan, and um, essentially God was wanting to develop a relationship with this man for the purpose of building a nation which would ultimately bless the whole world. And right at the beginning, he says to Abraham, before he became Abraham, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Although Abraham did receive a very special reward in the sense that he was given a son in his old age, nevertheless, it was God himself who was Abraham's reward. 
Now, Jesus talks about people being hypocrites here. Um, It's a word that is often used of us, isn't it? They say, you Christians are a lot of hypocrites. And what they actually mean is, you're not doing what you're saying, or what you say you believe. But this is slightly different. And the origin of the word is an actor who wore a mask to impersonate somebody else. That's the origin of the word. And so these people are giving the impression that they're doing something very righteous and pious and so on. But actually, they're not accomplishing that because they're only wearing a mask. And I think we understand this, don't we? That we don't do good acts in order to win the praise of others. We are doing them before our Heavenly Father. But before we move off this, just to think, what are the possibilities of us getting this wrong? You know, what, what are the dangers for us? And you'll notice in the notes there, I said, beware of Christian celebrity status. And we're in a a day and age with all the media and so on that we're raising up Christian celebrities. People who stand before thousands and thousands of of people, often they're musicians, very good musicians, singers, they're worship leaders. Now, I'm not saying their motives are wrong, don't get me wrong, but it is such a danger because there's a kind of adulation of this, you know, whoever they are, I won't mention names, it's not but but you know, there are these people who are in great demand. Please come and lead our worship, come and lead our prayer conference or whatever it is. And there's huge danger there, and I'm sure these people have to really guard their hearts. Um, and, you know, anybody who stands before people, you know, when I'm standing before you now, what's going through my mind? Will these people like me? Will they like what I'm saying? Will they approve of what I'm saying this morning? Or is my overall motivation, Father, I'm doing this before you and I want to represent you well. I, I want to, to speak the truth this morning. I won't, we don't want people to have any wrong impression of you this morning. So we have to really have to guard our hearts. And, the, and the, the word is don't make your faith a performance. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Remember, um, this... Um, uh, scripture is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and one of the things Jesus talked about was storing up treasure in heaven. Remember he said, don't store up treasure on earth because it all goes to nothing. It rots and fades and goes to, goes to nothing. But he said, store up treasure in heaven you know, where no one can break in and steal and it will never perish. And of course, in actual fact, probably Jesus was primarily talking about money. You know, don't try and store up money in this life, but store up treasure in heaven. But we can think about it in terms of attracting the approval of men. We can think, this is my aim. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I want people's approval. I I want them to think I'm great and whatever. But that is storing up treasure on earth and it will come to nothing. But if we look for God's approval then we're storing up treasure in heaven. And somebody has used a phrase, I think it's really helpful, that we must try with whatever we do to have an audience of one. You know, it's before him, that we're doing it before him. And even though, obviously, people do get to know of the good things maybe that we're doing. Now, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And uh, Sitimbile came up here and talked about money given to him. I had no idea about that. All right, And I'm sure that money gets passed around here to help people without anybody blowing trumpets about it. And that's how it obviously should be. Um, I um, 
I saw a little illustration in a book. I thought it was really helpful in trying to understand what does this mean that God is our reward? What, how can we appreciate that? And there's the illustration of marriage. Now we know that the, the, the best intention of marriage is to have a, a loving, secure, fulfilling relationship. That's, that's the object of marriage, isn't it? Okay. But we can marry for wrong motives. We can marry for money or status, as I did, of course. <laughs> but, but, but people do that, don't they? And in fact, I don't know if it still happened, but years ago, kings and queens used to marry into other royal households to improve their status and standing in the world. If we marry for the wrong motives, we don't get the reward of marriage. We don't get the loving, secure, fulfilling relationship. Right? And this is the same with God. If we approach God, if we do things with the wrong attitude and looking for the wrong rewards, then we won't get God's reward, which is a secure, loving and fulfilling relationship. So that's very important. Then we move on to then the ineffective and effective prayer, <clears throat> which is becoming more relevant to uh, our particular subject today. The misuse of prayer. Again, we've got these Jewish hypocrites. Jesus used that word so often about them, didn't he, really? He had a real go at them. But um, it talks about them standing on street corners and in the synagogue, on a street corner, because you've got all the people down this road and all the people down that road can see what you're doing. And uh, they just put on a big show because they wanted to be revered in the community. They wanted to be known, and we are the, we are the pious people, we are the religious people. And clearly that's wrong. And then he also talks about pagan babblers, right? People who keep on repeating the same thing over and over again. I think um, you might liken that to a mantra. You know, there are some religions that have a mantra, you know. It's a phrase, it's a word, it's a sound that you keep repeating. The understanding of a mantra is that the word, the phrase, the sound has power in itself, So if I keep repeating this word, then I will receive the power that is encompassed in this word, right? And there have even been some, um, you know, sort of uh, from Christian circles who've suggested that we can in some ways use a mantra. But we must never use a mantra. Even if I keep on repeating the word Jesus, it has no power in itself unless I've had a revelation as to who Jesus is. So I... I might well keep on repeating the word Jesus, but all it is doing is bringing to remembrance the revelation of the truth that is encompassed in that word Jesus to me. Uh, in another country, the word may be different. Yesu or something right like that. Uh, so it isn't in the word, it's, it's the revelation that has come to you through that word. So we've got to be very careful that, that what we're praying and what we're saying is to do with revelation not just an exercise. So what can our misuse of prayer be? Well, Jesus talks about, um, obviously, praying on our own. Um, but we do a lot of praying together. We pray in public. We've done it this morning in a context of worship. What are the dangers about praying together? Now, I do realise that for some people it's very hard even to pray in public. I appreciate that. But there are others who've got over that and they're very happy to pray in public. But I've suggested that there, that there is some misuse 
for Christians. Um, in a group, we can pray and we are informing people of something. We are telling them what we think they need to know. But we do it in a prayer. Now, God knows it anyway, and it all sounds funny. God, you know that Mrs. Jones has broken her leg, and Mrs. Jones has got to go to hospital this week, and she needs, she needs some transport this week, or whatever, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not hugely wrong. But where is the focus? The focus is telling the people. It's not, it's not on God, it's about telling the people. You know, and worse than that, it's correcting these people need correcting and I will do it through my prayers. They have a wrong handle on this subject and I am going to correct them through my prayers. Right? And worse than that, it's rebuking people through our prayers. We, our aim, I'm going to get at these people. I don't speak to them directly, but I can pray out loud and they're going to get the message that I've got something to say to them. Right? And um, justifying justifying ourselves maybe. Maybe we feel a bit um, somehow out, out of sync with everybody else. And, you know, we don't know why we should feel like that. So I, I'm going to justify myself and I, and I do that through my prayers. Now, whatever it is, and I'm not saying that we're greatly in danger of that, but perhaps we've got to watch ourselves. Perhaps we can all fall into that because the focus is wrong. The focus is on me communicating this to all the other people in the guise that I'm praying to God. All right? But if we're praying to God, he should be the focus, not the people that are around about us. It's difficult in a, in a Christian context, particularly a charismatic Christian context, when part of our worship is towards one another. You know, if we bring a prophecy, it is towards one another. Right? It's from God, it's towards one another. So th- th- there is a difficulty, but we have to get through it. And particularly when it comes to prayer, we must see that we do not misuse it. And uh, I won't read it now for the sake of, of time, but the parable of the Pharisee and the publican um, there that Jesus told in Luke 18 is an example of that. But the thing that Jesus was saying about going and praying to your father in secret, it's a test, all right? Because what I am to you here, I might not be before God on my own, all right? And somebody has said, we are what we are, what we are in secret, Okay? I can put on a show here, and you can think, or you may not think, but yes, he's got it all together. He's fine. He's, he can pray. He can do this or the other. But only God knows what I'm really like. And it's a test, and it's a safeguard for us. It's a safeguard because we can do lots of things in public and get away with it, but actually we don't get away with it in one sense when we're before God in secret. So he's not saying don't pray together by any means. But he says, just be careful. Okay, we're going to look at then um, the Lord's Prayer. Um, so we've got as far now as um, verse 9. And um, I've suggested here that maybe it's better called the Disciples' Prayer. Um, it isn't actually necessarily the prayer that Jesus prayed. It's the prayer he told his disciples uh, to pray. And of course, in um, Luke's version, the disciples had seen Jesus praying. They had observed him praying And they said, Lord, will you teach us to pray just as John, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. They saw something in Jesus that was different 
And we may get a clue as to what the difference is um, as we go through this. But it was different from the kind of prayers that they were experiencing, either in the synagogue or what these people were praying on the street corners or even, even what they'd understood, perhaps from the Old Testament, which was, which was their only Bible, of course. So we kind of call it the disciples' prayer. This, then, is how you should pray. Um, many people use this prayer just as a prayer. Other people use it as a foundation for prayer. I think it's probably both. I don't think it's wrong to, 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 uh, to pray it out, either together or on your own. Um, but I think it tells us so much about prayer. And uh, we're not going to get through um, all of it today, but I think the opening is a key to any praying, any praying. Now, as just as the disciples observed it, Jesus had a, and, and enjoyed a unique relationship with the Father as the Son of God. And what he's doing here is he is inviting us to share in the privileges of sonship. And um, I, I've called this, Edith, the privilege of Christian prayer. And I want to suggest to you it's absolutely unique. Uh, it's distinctive. Uh, it is not like any other prayer that, that, that may be prayed. And, uh, you know, we may be aware of other religions that pray. Muslims are quite prominent because they do it in public, wherever they are. If they're devout, Muslims will unroll their mat and they will look towards Mecca and pray five times a day. And um, people will think, well, they are very devout and they're very devout in their prayers. And I don't, I don't doubt that. But I want to suggest to you that Christian prayer is absolutely unique. There is nothing like it. And... Um, Jesus is wanting to draw us into the, the same kind of relationship that he has with the Father. He invites us to share in the privileges of sonship. As I said, this is probably better called the disciples' prayer. And really, this is a, very much a prayer for disciples. Jesus is saying, come on, this is an adventure, and this prayer is going to be the basis of your adventure with God. This is a great adventure that I'm calling you into. So there's some scriptures here. All things have been committed to me by my Father. In other words, Jesus has the way that he can bring people to God. Um, he's been given that authority. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. That was and always has been um, the situation. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, very, very special relationship in the Trinity. And even though Jesus laid aside his majesty and came to earth, he enjoyed a very, very intimate and special relationship with his Father. And maybe that's what the disciples observed. But will you notice, he goes on to say, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's the glory of it. Jesus is saying, I have this relationship and I want to draw you into it. Come alongside me and we're going to have that relationship with the Father. And uh, when Jesus was, uh, uh, later when he was um, raised from the dead, um, and one of the first people to see him was Mary. She thought he was the gardener, you remember, on, on the resurrection day. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. 
So Jesus is making that very clear to the disciples. He is your God and my God. He's your Father and he is my Father. So we come to the beginning of it. Our Father in heaven. And um, I would suggest to you this is um, a very intimate family prayer. It is a family prayer. It, it isn't a general prayer. Now, I guess that most of you um, probably lived through an era when you learnt this at school. How many people learnt the Lord's Prayer at school? Look at that. Oh, even younger people did as well. Isn't that great? Yeah. Okay, I learnt it. We used to say it every day at school in assembly. Now, um, but I didn't have a relationship with, with a Heavenly Father at that stage. I just learnt it and it was, this is what you do. This is what you say. This is Christian or whatever. We sang hymns. I can still remember some of those hymns now that we, we sang. And, um, but we learnt it at school just by rote. Now, I'm pleased that I learnt it in a sense, but I just have to recognise that it didn't have very much significance because I'm using the words father when I didn't know God as father. And um, so I'm not saying don't teach children but we need, at this stage, to understand that there is something very different. And then he, he uses the word our. Our Father. When you pray, pray our Father. Now, of course, we may pray this prayer on our own, but Jesus wants us to know that it's a family, it's a community prayer, and it's about being in relationship with other people as well who are in that same relationship with God. And it's very important. You know, Julian has emphasised in, in the things he's been saying to us that we're doing this together. That's, that's Julian's word, okay? It's written over him, together. But it's right. We must consider that we are doing it together. And even though we may pray this prayer on our own, we mustn't do it without a consciousness that I'm part of a family that is called together to worship God and to praise God and so on. And, um, you know, I've, sadly I've come across more than once that maybe someone has, has dropped off from, from attending church on a Sunday or, or anything at all and it's gone on for a while and you've gone to visit them just to see what's what and try and encourage them to come back. And often they've got all sorts of excuses. Maybe they've just felt a, a bit disaffected or whatever, or they've, somebody's hurt them or whatever it is. Um, but they often want to try and justify themselves. So they might say, but I am actually praying a lot. I am, I, I am praying. Now, of course, if you've got problems with the church, then do take it to God. <laughs> I accept that fact. But at the end of the day, if you've taken that to God and you're praying a lot, God will lead you back to the church, right? Because, you know, we are God's plan and purpose to nurture Christians and for Christians to grow and flourish. So that is just an excuse very often, and it's very sad. So we've got to recognise this corporateness about it. And then he says, our Father. And um, Jesus is very clear here, do address God as Father. Now, um, this may not be a problem to you uh, at all, and it may not even be an issue in any way, but um, over the, in recent years, there's been concern about um, the particular gender emphasis in the scriptures. You know, and in fact, you know, th that we have a Bible that is an inclusive Bible. 
which means that you don't just... If it, if it previously said man, you don't mention man, you mention man and woman. And there are those who would want it completely um, gender-independent, gender-neutral scriptures, um, so that we talk about persons rather than names or particular titles. And the thing we need to know is that, and understand is that, Jesus didn't um, uh, suggest that we call God Father because that was a reflection of Jewish culture where we have a paternalistic um, kind of culture where the father is the head of the household and so on. It's because it's by direct revelation from heaven. It's from heaven that we're called. Now we have to acknowledge um, because um, God is spirit that he is, he is gender neutral, if you like, in that sense. Um, nevertheless, he exhibits... Um, characteristics that are male and female. Nevertheless, he has chosen to reveal to us uh, that we should call him Father. Now, it, it is a metaphor, but it's, it's one chosen by God. You know, so God doesn't have a specific gender in that sense, but he has, he has revealed to us you know, through his word and through his son that we should call him Father. Feminist theology prefers a trinity of creator, redeemer and sustainer. All right? We don't have Father, Son and Holy Spirit because that's too masculine. All right. But, um, of course, that, you know, that depersonalizes and confuses the person of the Trinity. So we need to just recognize and say, thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us as Father. And, Lord, we'll find out what that means. We'll find out what that means. And, of course, it's Father in heaven and that God is spirit and transcends all sexuality and gender, of course. Let's turn over. <clears throat> so I've kind of hinted at it already, but Father expresses an exclusive relationship. Right? Um, I'm a father, but I'm not a father to everybody. And it would be quite wrong. I know some younger people might say, come on, Dad, or something, you know. But, but it's no, there's no... No value in anybody calling me father unless I am their father, right? And that's very important. Now, there are some people who will be um, uh, rather upset by what I'm going to say now, but all people are not naturally children of God, right? Now, there are those who say, oh, yes, we are. Everybody's the child of God. The Bible never says so. The only thing you can say is um, that we're all creations of God, and that God loves the whole world, and God loves people. But he has preserved this relationship of child to father to some situation that's very, very special. And we see that we become such, we become children of God by adoption, by being born again by the Spirit of God. It is very specific in the Scriptures. And there's some Scriptures here just to help us. Uh, the one, first one is from John chapter 1 when it talks about the fact that Jesus came to his own people, the Jews. He was born a Jew, and they re rejected him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And then from Romans. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, our sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, 
Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I'd say it's very specific. It's very specific. Jesus said you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So it might sound harsh to say not everybody's a child of God, but it's very important because we must make that distinction because our sonship is very, very special. We are being drawn into the, 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 the sonship of Jesus uh, and we're going to inherit the same that he, the way that he inherits. We're co-heirs and co-inheritors. Abba speaks of intimacy, warmth and security. Some have said it's daddy, but um, the commentators tend to say it's more like dear father, but it's a very intimate term because it can be carried through into adulthood. It's not just a childlike um, uh, response. But let's notice particularly the order of this prayer. Um, the prayer deals with our, our needs in all sorts of ways, um, for daily provisions, about our forgiveness of others, our relationships with others, about not getting into temptation and so on, about confessing our sins and the like. Um, they're all very important things, but we must note that they're done in the context of a secure relationship. Um, and I think, you know, I think David kind of hinted at that uh, this, this morning. You know, that it, we, we haven't got to worry about the policeman as we wind down the window and think, what have I done wrong? We come to our Father who fully accepts us and loves us. And we, he wants us to deal with the issues in our lives, but it's in the context of a secure, intimate, warm relationship. That never, that never is taken from us. And the, the illustration of the prodigal son which many of you will know, the story of the, the boy who wanted his half of the inheritance, went off and squandered it, uh, gets in a, in, a, in a mess and decides to go home. He goes home in a very um, humble and penitent way, thinking that the first thing he's got to do is confess his sin to his father. But what does the father do? He won't let the boy speak. He puts his arms around him. Uh, and he said, you know, you're my son. You're secure. Now, a little bit later, you can tell me what's wrong. But now, just for now, you're going to get a big hug from me and you're going to get a robe and a ring and all the rest of it. So we must you know, recognise there's something very significant in the order that Jesus gives us here. So it's relational. There are many names for God in the Bible um, and some of you may have done studies on them. But this is relational. You, know, you cannot call God Father unless he is your Father. There's no point. He can be um, our Father um, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful good news. Hallowed be your name. And this is the last um, clause, if you like, that we're going to look at this morning. Hallowed be your name. God's name is about his self-revelation. God's name and the names, if you like, are the ones that God has given us about himself to help us to understand him. And to, to get a sense of the awe and wonder of it, um, the reference there to Genesis 3 is where God appears to Moses in a burning bush. We all know this very graphic story. And um, um, Moses is overawed by this and God tells him, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. And, and God is a consuming fire and, and Moses doesn't know what to do in a sense. 
And after God has told him that he's got to go back to his own people, he says, Moses says, and who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, you know, he says, I am who I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. What that's saying is that God is totally um, identified in himself. He's totally sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anything external to himself to identify him, to, to qualify him. He is in totally um, relevant and the revelation comes from himself. And we see that in his presence and manifest glory at times in the Old Testament, his name is very important. But I want to get this point about reputation. That's the, the next point. God is very jealous for his name. God is very jealous that his name should be upheld and honoured, that it shouldn't be maligned or blasphemed. The, reason, the main reason being is people get a wrong impression of God because of that. They don't confront the true and living God when his name is maligned. And remember when we were looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, that um, Nehemiah was very disturbed and upset because he heard that Jerusalem, the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, and it was a whole distressing uh, situation. And the reason why he was, because he knew that Jerusalem was to be a showcase for God. It should be a place of God's glory. It should be a place where the Gentiles round about could look and they could see the wonder and the glory of God. But what did they see? Broken down walls and gates that have burned with fire. The reason being is because the people sinned. The people sinned and uh, they lost their city and were eventually taken into exile. Now, it's a little reference here from Ezekiel because Ezekiel was a contemporary prophet at the time. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <clears throat> and uh, listen, listen how jealous God is for his name. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. They had profaned the name. God had given the people of Israel his name. And what have they done? Um, they brought it into disrepute. And the, the, the point I've made here on the sheet is that intimacy, which we've mainly talked about in terms of God being our Father, um, should never be at the expense of reverence. God is still holy. Um, God is still a consuming fire. Uh, but we can approach him with boldness uh, because he is and declares himself to be our Heavenly Father. And we see that Jesus came to restore the luster of God's name. By the time Jesus came, um, the, the, the Jewish faith had, had, had kind of sunk pretty low. And we all know uh, about the uh, Jewish leaders who kept the, the, the people down. He, they gave them rules and regulations they could never keep. And so it was a very oppressive um, kind of religion. And Jesus uh, had come to restore the luster of God's name. Firstly, in his death, um, this is taken uh, from the passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Now we interpret that to mean that Jesus, that the, that the sin of the world had to be paid for. The wrath of God was against mankind. And that, that had to be satisfied. Uh, but Jesus, and so God had to be glorified in his judgments and in his justice. But also he was glorified in his love. And on the cross, as we know, that God's justice and righteousness and God's love and mercy came together in Jesus so that they were both satisfied. And God was glorified. His name was upheld. And then Jesus reflecting on all the things that he'd done in his life on earth, during his ministry perhaps, um, in John 17, which is part of a, we call a high priestly prayer. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So Jesus had come to restore the name of God to the people, to show what God was really like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we need to recognise we're not just stating a fact. I think there's one version of the Bible which says, um, uh, Father in heaven, your name be holy, or your name is holy. Now his name is holy, but when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we're actually saying is, may your name be honoured and glorified and praised through my life, through our lives. May, you be glor- may your name be upheld um, in my day and age. So very important. Now Jesus, you know, just as Jesus revealed the glory of God to the world, it's now the role of the church. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus brought wonderful light concerning who God was and how we could be get, we get right with God, how we could be justified in God's sight. He brought wonderful light. But he goes on to say, you are now the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the ones who are to uphold God's name and God's reputation. A city set on a hill and the salt of the earth. And so Jesus said in Matthew 5, in the same way, that's the same way that he does, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now if you're quick and sharp, you may say, hang on, that seems to counter what Jesus was saying at the beginning. Jesus said, go and do your good deeds in secret. But if you're going to do them in secret, how can men um, uh, uh, praise God uh, uh, for them? I don't think the two things are um, incompatible in the sense that Jesus was looking at people's motivation at the beginning. I am doing this so that I can get a reputation. I am doing this, I'm showing, I'm doing a, a good deed here an act of righteousness so that all these people can see how great I am. Now the thing is, if we do, um, in the sense that Jesus is talking about here, letting our light shine with the right motivation, that is to glorify God, and that we're jealous for his name and not our name, it's not our name that's important, it's his name, um, then you know, if God chooses to let others know about it, all right, and maybe we'll get a thanks now and again. But the issue is, Our intention is to glorify God's name and to make him great, not ourselves. But we have to watch it. There are things in the Christian life we have to guard our hearts about. You know, and and sometimes we have to gently um, help one another with that um, if if things are getting off off track. 
Just to close then, praying this, that is, hallowed be your name, implies ethics and mission. Ethics, you know, lives that glorify his name and enhance his reputation, bringing light to dark places. The way we live ethically right, is important because we, we bear God's name. Now, whether we like it or not, the church bears God's name. You know, people will say, if that's what God's like, then I don't want to know. All right? if, if the way you've treated me, if that's what God's like, well, then you can forget it. Yeah. So we actually bear God's name. It's a huge responsibility. And we need the grace of God and we need the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God because we're not perfect. We're all flawed people and we get it wrong sometimes. But we just need to understand that we have a, an amazing calling on our lives, that we are God's representatives. His name... The future of his name and the reputation of his name is down to us. He's not, he's not promoting his name any other way other than through the church. And it's missional as well. Right? It's about mission. Spreading the message that God is not only holy but gracious and merciful and is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. Um, you know, that's very important. This is the message that we're taking. And they, people can know that through Jesus. They too can become God's children and know him as father. I'm going to stop there. Um, but we've only done a bit. We'll carry on with the Lord's Prayer next week. Um, but <clears throat> what, what I really want you know, to get across this morning is the privilege of prayer. Whether you're praying the Lord's Prayer or whenever you're praying. And the questions that we've got for sale this week are to just to ask us that kind of question. Do we, do we appreciate that privilege? Do we, do we sense that the amazing thing, that we can pray in the same way that Jesus prayed because we've been brought into a similar relationship with God, that we, are, we become sons of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we can bring, as new people, we can bring glory to his name in the earth. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we've kind of glibly prayed this prayer and not sensed the wonder and awe of being invited to be your children and to pray to you in such an intimate way. Father, thank you for the security we have in prayer. Thank you, Father God, that, Lord, even, Lord, if we're downcast and and broken because of our failure. Father God, that doesn't affect the way we come to you. You still welcome us as your beloved children with arms outstretched, arms to wrap round us and to reassure us. Yes, you want to deal with the issues, but Lord, in that wonderful, wonderful relationship, Lord, will you help us never to lose the wonder of it? And Lord, will it help us to, to shape our prayers Lord, to shape the way that we uh, relate to those outside us and to, so that we too want to draw them um, into this loving relationship. Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.